0: Please take your Bibles this evening and turn to Luke 9. Christ is glorious. Walking through Luke 9 for some time now. And we come to a very special passage of Scripture. We've seen so many things. We've heard so many things. Even just in Luke 9, Herod wonders, who is this man? They say he's someone. Maybe John the Baptist risen from the dead. Maybe some prophet. Herod's curious. The apostles are sent out. They cast out demons. They heal. They come back. There's a multitude. Jesus says, give them to eat. The apostles are confused. How can we do this? Jesus multiplies the bread and the fishes. He says, where's your faith? They're alone praying. Jesus says, whom say men that I am? Peter says, you're the Christ of God. Jesus says, that's right. And I will be rejected of the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. There's a difference between those who think I'm a good man and those who say I am the Christ. He says, and that difference will make a big difference. Because no man who doesn't take up his cross and follow me is worthy of me. Because no man who doesn't give up his life can save his life. And through it all, we have seen a glorious Christ. But just how glorious, we can't really understand. We're going to read of something this evening that is going to give us just a little glimpse of that glory. As Moses told ask the Lord would you show me your glory and God said I cannot show you my glory for if you see my glory you will die but I'll pass by you and I'll cover you and you can see my back as I pass by so too we get to glimpse just a slight bit of the glory of the Lord in our time together this evening You're in Luke 9. We begin in verse 28, and the Bible tells us this. And it came to pass, about an eight days after these sayings, he took Peter and John and James and went up into a mountain to pray. Eight days have passed since Jesus announces his own death, since he calls his disciples to understand the dynamics of belief and announced that some of them would indeed see the kingdom of God, likely referencing his resurrected self. We immediately come to a bit of a contextual conundrum here. Luke says about eight days after those events, Jesus takes Peter, James and John to go pray. What's interesting about this, however, is that in Matthew chapter 17, verse 1, and in Mark chapter 9, verse 2, the Bible says, and after six days. So it's after six days in Matthew and Mark, it's after about eight days in Luke. So do we have a contradiction in our Bibles? We do not. Neither of these need to be incorrect. Not only does Luke say about eight days, giving a generalized term, uh, but it seems likely that Luke is rendering the timetable to include the partial day on either side of the events at hand. And let me give you an illustration of, of what I mean by that. Uh, like with any children, my kids get excited for milestones. If we tell them that we're going on vacation, or something, someone is going to come to meet us, the, there's a birthday coming, or there's a holiday coming, they want to know at some point, Dad, Mom, how many days until said event? And at that point, Mom and Dad have a decision as to how we want to calculate those days. And different people are different ways. I remember growing up and I was in public school and there would always be a countdown to Christmas break. And we'd make one of those silly little paper rings and you pull off one every day, right? And, and, and in that case, there were two groups of people. There were always two groups of people. There were the group of people that said, I'm not going to count today And I'm not going to count the last day because I want to think of it only as, as as few days as possible and then it's here because they're so excited. And then there's the other group that said, no, 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 I don't want to make it feel like it's fewer days than it is. So I'm gonna count every last moment. So I'm gonna round up in any way I can. So today, we're, we're halfway through today, but I'm counting today. And we only have a half day on the last day, but I'm counting that day because I don't want to overly excite myself. Uh, so more or less, in those circumstances, The two groups of people counting were always one or two days off of each other. And yet we can't say that either person was wrong. They were just counting it a different way. And so if today is Sunday and the event is Friday, I might tell my children that there are four days until that event, right? I don't, don't count today. I don't count the day that the event takes place. There's four days in between. I might tell my children there's only four days to the event. Or maybe I'll include today, but not Friday, because the event happens on Friday. Well, then there are five days, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Or maybe I'll count Friday as well, because perhaps it doesn't take place till later on Friday, in which case I would count Friday too, and there would be not four days, not five days, but there would be six days until the event in question. Again, none of these is wrong. They just come from a different Perspective, And so we can perhaps envision a situation where Matthew and Mark claim six days and Luke claims about eight days and both of them are actually correct. They simply have a different, a slightly different perspective. And the Bible says that Jesus took Peter, James and John up with him into a mountain to pray. Now, Peter, James and John are what we would call Jesus's inner circle or his inner three. We see Jesus have several circles of interaction within his ministry. He had a bro- broader range of followers, numbering, of course, in the, the thousands of the whosoever will message. Uh, then he had smaller groups. We read of, of several hundred at one time or another. We know of the 70 that in Luke 10 he will commission to go. So there were 70 disciples that were specifically commissioned by Christ. And then there were, of course, the 12 who followed Jesus from the beginning and then there was an inner circle of three comprised of Peter, James, and John. They were the most privileged. In Luke 8, we uh, read of Jesus healing the daughter of the ruler of the synagogue in Capernaum. When Jesus put everyone out of the house, he only admitted into that house where the dead girl was the parents of this girl and Peter, James, and John. In the Garden of Gethsemane on the night of Jesus' trial, The 11, remember Judas has already gone to betray Jesus. The 11 all go to the garden with him, but only three of those. He left the rest of the the disciples on the outskirts to pray, the eight. And then he brought only Peter, James, and John into that more intimate area of the garden where he asked them to watch and pray. And of course they fell asleep um, as he prayed in agony. And so it is here as well. That when Jesus was going to be transfigured, he took this privileged three with him upon the mountain. And he took them there specifically that they would pray with him, the text tells us. It was not uncommon for Jesus to take these little breaks to pray. Dedicated times in his ministry where he separated himself from ministry in order to feed his own spirit. We continue in verse 29, the Bible says, And as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered, and his raiment was white and glistening. Jesus is praying, and as he does, the Bible says that the appearance of his person was changed, and his clothing was white and glistening. We might correlate the intensity of Jesus' prayers and earnestness of his petition with this event, which the gosp- in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, Uh, we find the word transfiguration. Now, the word in the Greek from which we get our word transfiguration, or excuse me, the word in the Greek is is the word from which we get our English word metamorphosis. It's used four times in the Bible. Two times in the Gospels, Matthew and Mark, to speak of this event. Once in Romans 12, 2, to describe God's expectation of an inward change in the believer. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, to describe God's expectation of our duty to reflect God's glory. We'll talk more about these in our application. It is perhaps not surprising that Luke did not use the word transfiguration, that word metamorphosis, in his gospel, because he was writing to a Gentile audience. And the concept of the metamorphosis was actually a very common, well-known concept in pagan Mythology. The Roman poet Ovid wrote an epic in 8 AD called Metamorphosis. You see there in the Latin, Metamorphosion. It comprised 15 books, 250 myths about creation and the gods It was a godless epic, it was filled with pagan heresy, dedicated to the deification of Julius Caesar. Many of these myths talked about Julius Caesar being God. And as such, Luke probably wanted to distance himself as much as possible from the concept of a metamorphosis. And this might explain why in Matthew and Mark we see this concept of the transfiguration, the metamorphosis. But in Luke, he simply says that his countenance was altered. He avoids it somewhat. And the Bible says during this transformation, Jesus was changed. His clothing glistened. Whether his clothing actually changed or simply the brightness emanating from his person caused the color to be whitewashed, we cannot say. Either way, what what we see happening here is a manifestation of the glory of God in visible form. And indeed, it must have been. Glorious. If we think about the other instances where we see the glory of the Lord in some form or fashion. In Isaiah chapter 6 when Isaiah sees the glory of the Lord. In Ezekiel where Ezekiel sees the wheels and the wheels and and the beautiful colors of the thrones of heaven. And the glory of the Lord. in, In Revelation as we see John see the glory of the Lord. The brightness of the glory when Saul is struck blind on the road to Damascus. In all of these cases we see that the glory of the Lord was something magnificent, was something stupendous. Jesus, radiant in light and splendor, shining like the sun. And this is how the glory of the Lord has often been portrayed in Scripture. Exodus 24 de- describes the glory of the Lord resting upon Mount Sinai as a devouring fire on the top of the mount. So glorious was the presence of the Lord that Moses' face actually radiated light after being in God's presence. Do you remember those stories in, in Exodus where Moses came down or came out from the glory of the Lord and his face was shining and the people were afraid and he actually had to veil his face among the people because his face was literally radiating light? And here we see a similar concept with the glory of the Lord being manifest in a blaze of light. Verses 30 and 31 And behold, there talked with him two men. Which were Moses and Elias, Elijah, who appeared in glory and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish, accomplish at Jerusalem. We find in these two verses what transpired during this transfiguration. The disciples will find, actually, uh, in a moment we're asleep, as the disciples were wont to do, right? Jesus is praying, the disciples are sleeping, And they actually wake up in the middle of this thing. And when they wake up, they see three men glimmering and shining. Jesus' appearance changes. His clothes shimmer. Moses and Elijah appear and begin speaking with him. And the major point is the identity of these two men. Moses and Elijah. Why Moses and Elijah? Well, it's the same reason why John the Baptist was so important at the beginning of Luke. Because John the Baptist represented the law and the prophets, right? He represented the Old Testament. That's why it was so important that Jesus was baptized of John because it showed an agreement between the Old Testament, the, the, that which was old and that which was new, that which was coming. In the very same way, we see here Moses and Elijah speaking with Jesus. The representative of the law, that would be Moses. The representative of the prophets, that would be Elijah. And both of them coming to speak of Jesus' death. Don't lose the significance of this. Moses spoke of Jesus' death. The law spoke of Jesus' death. The prophet spoke of Jesus' death. And here's the law and the prophets physically, actually speaking with Jesus about his death. Moses and the prophets form the essence of the Old Testament. The essence of the very problem that the Jews had with Christ. In Luke 16, we'll find an instance where the Pharisees explicitly tell Jesus that they do not accept him because they are disciples of Moses and the prophets. How ironic it must have been to Jesus when they tell Jesus, we will not accept you because we are disciples of Moses when Moses and Elijah were standing with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. All of the narratives and poetry, the signs, the wonders in the Old Testament, they're meant to be a testimony of Jesus. And in fact, the Old Testament doesn't really make sense apart from Jesus. Nor does Jesus really make sense apart from the Old Testament. Don't ever let anybody tell you the Old Testament doesn't matter. The Old Testament is vital to our understanding of Christ So the fact that Moses and Elijah are the two men here is very significant. Not only does this show Jesus' great divinity, but it also shows that the law and the prophets were aligned with, they were subject to the ministry and the purposes of Jesus Christ. It's also perhaps notable that Moses and Elijah are two of the three men in Scriptures whose mortal bodies are somewhat unaccounted for. We know from Scripture that Enoch did not see death, Genesis 5:24 uh tells us that Enoch was not for the Lord took him and Hebrews 11:5 tells us that Enoch was translated so that he never saw death. We know in scriptures that Elijah did not see death. 2 Kings chapter 2 verse 11 tells us that Elijah was carried into the heavens on a chariot of fire with Elisha standing by. Now Moses Moses did die. Moses did die. He died up on Mount Pisgah overlooking Canaan, right? But there was something quite unique about Moses as well. Like with Elijah and with Enoch, both of whom we might say maintain their mortal and earthly bodies with their immortal spirits. And just to make this clear, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that Jesus is the first fruits of the heavenly resurrected body, right? Which demands that neither Elijah nor Enoch immediately Received their resurrected bodies fitted for heaven. They were not translated into resurrected bodies. At the rapture, that generation of the church is going to be translated out of this world and immediately given their resurrected bodies, right? But that was not the case with Enoch and Elijah because Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection, which means he was the first one to receive a resurrected body. So Elijah and Enoch did not receive the resurrected bodies. Their mortal bodies somehow were retained, Right? Somehow. We don't know how that works. But their earthly mortal bodies never do knew death. This being said, we believe from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 15 to 17, that there will be an entire generation of the church that will not see death. But since they could not be fitted into heavenly bodies because Jesus had not raised from the dead, their mortal bodies are, if we can put them this way, unaccounted for. And then we come back to Moses, and we find that though he did die, his mortal body was treated somewhat uniquely. In Jude, which only has one chapter, in Jude chapter 1, or the only chapter of Jude, verse 9, the Bible tells us that Michael the archangel and Satan himself contended over the body, over the earthly vessel of Moses. We don't know much about this. It's actually found uh, in the book of Enoch, which is an apocryphal book. It's not inspired scripture, but it's also found in Jude. And to this end, we might understand that God has perhaps some other plan for Moses, which will require his uncorrupted earthly body. We don't really know. But it is interesting That we find here Moses and Elijah, two men of whom their earthly mortal bodies are somewhat unaccounted for. And in the book of Luke we find something that Matthew and Mark don't tell us. We find the content of their conversation. Matthew and Mark don't tell us the content of the conversation between Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, but Luke does. And he says that the content of their conversation was Jesus' death. They spoke of the death that Jesus would soon experience in Jerusalem. And again, this is very significant that the representative of the law and the representative of the prophets were coming together to speak of Jesus' death, just as we would expect because the law and the prophets speak of Jesus' death. Continuing in verse 32, But Peter and they that were with him were heavy with sleep, and when they were awake, they saw his glory and the two men that stood with him. I... I I want to laugh at this. You know, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus looks at Peter, James, and John, and He says, Could you not tarry with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you fall into temptation. I want to laugh, because Jesus, (laughs) the frustration in the Garden of Gethsemane was probably that they did this all the time. Here he's asking them to pray for him. Here he's asking them to pray with him. And they're asleep. Jesus is praying and he's transfigured before them and they wake up when the light that's emanating from Jesus' person wakes them up. Right? This is, this is absurd. Except that, and this is why I can't laugh, because I bet I would have been asleep too. And I hate that. But I bet I would have been So they wake up, and they see Jesus' glory, and Moses and Elijah are standing there speaking with Jesus about his death. Verse 33, and it came to pass, as they departed from him, Peter said unto Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elias, not knowing what he said. So the transfiguration happens and it's now finished. And they're all a little bit, probably a little bit shell-shocked. What just happened here? And Peter speaks to Jesus and he says, It's good, Lord, that we were here. And said, We should erect memorials for this event. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And I love that little last bit. Not knowing what he said. The commentary in the three Gospels on Peter's words is very telling. In Matthew chapter 17, verse 5, the Bible says, While he yet spake, a voice from a cloud spoke and said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. So in Matthew, we learn that God kind of interrupts Peter. Peter's attempting to impose meaning on the event through memorials and says effectively... God says effectively, if you really want to honor what you saw here, Peter, don't erect a memorial, listen to Jesus. Our Luke passage, we find Peter recommending these memorials and then as I mentioned, Luke adds after Peter's words that Peter really didn't know what he was saying here. He didn't really know what was going on. And rather than just stay quiet, Peter pulls a Peter. He opens his big mouth and says something unnecessary, reflecting his ignorance. But see, Peter was one of those guys, right? So you know how it is. One of those guys who something awkward happens, right? and everyone's sitting around and then you're just waiting for something to happen and there's always someone in the group that feels like he always has to say something, right? Always has to interject something. And sometimes he interjects something and it breaks the ice and that's a good thing. Other times he says something and you're like, man, could you just have kept your mouth shut, right? And this is one of those. Nothing needed to be said here. He didn't know what he was saying. He just felt like this, uh, this, this thing just happened, and instead of just basking in the glory of the moment, I have to speak up here. And so as he's saying, hey, maybe we should direct the memorials, God just interrupts him and says, look, this is my beloved son, listen to this guy. That's how you can memorialize this event. You might envision Peter, James, and John sitting around the fire after Jesus' ascension. The Holy Spirit has fallen on them. They finally figured out what's going on here. They they understand the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. They understand their commission. And they're sitting around a fire talking about the good old days. And James pipes up and he says, Hey, Peter, do you remember when we woke up and Jesus was there glistening? And we saw the Lord literally changed before our eyes and His glory shone. And we saw Moses and we saw Elijah. And Peter pipes up and says, Oh, no, don't remind me. And James smiles and he says, yeah, do you remember when we were basking in the glory of Jesus and we're walking away? Do you remember what you said, Peter? John pipes up, yeah, you said, let's build some tabernacles. And as you're talking, the, the Holy Father from heaven literally interrupts you. And says, you missed the point, Peter. Don't build memorials, just listen to Jesus. And then they all look at each other and go, "Ha, ha, ha, ha." Peter rolls his eyes and says, "Yeah, shut up," Or something like that. That's kind of the, the circumstances I envision them in my sanctified imagination some 15 years later. But more seriously, Peter's words here are an attempt to honor an occasion in some way because they literally could not grasp the situation. They were speechless. And this is what Mark chapter nine, verse six implies in the Mark passage. That Peter said what he said because he didn't know what to say. They were afraid. They were marveling. And so Peter just said something that he thought would sound appropriate. But really it only revealed his ignorance. And God says again, If you want to memorialize the glory of my son, hear him. Verses 34 and 35. While he thus spake, there came a cloud and overshadowed them, and they feared as they entered into the cloud. And there came a voice out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son. Hear him. In Luke and Mark, that's what we read. This is my beloved Son. Hear him. In Matthew, as we read already, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. The message hearkens back to Jesus' baptism where he Uh, He comes out of the water and the Holy Ghost descends like a dove and the voice of the Father uh, from heaven says, This is my, thou art my beloved Son, excuse me, in thee I am well pleased. Jesus' ministry was confirmed by the law and the prophets. It was validated by the voice of the Father himself. And the Father's voice said this, Honor my Son by obeying him. Verse 36. And when the voice was passed, Jesus was found alone and they kept it close and told no man in those days any of those things which they had seen. Jesus, in Matthew, we learn that Jesus specifically tells them not to tell anybody until after his resurrection about these events as they stand. Peter's response reveals that even these men were not quite prepared to receive the events that had just taken place. Certainly the other disciples would not have been able to receive it. And that was okay because the point was that once Jesus does rise from the dead and once the Holy Spirit would fall upon them on the day of Pentecost, the realities of the transfiguration would flood their consciousness and would validate... In an even greater way, the importance of the ministry of Jesus Christ. So Jesus tells them, what you saw today, I don't want you to tell anybody what you saw until after I rise from the dead. And they obey him. And this brings us to our time of application. Where we, now understanding what the Bible says in its context, seek to draw out from them... Pertinent or necessary application which can touch the way we live our lives. And the first point of application that I would like us to consider this evening is this. Christ is glorious. Christ is glorious. I think we miss this sometimes. I think it can get lost between the day in and the day out grind. I think it can get lost between the routines of even the church service, I think this can get lost in the depths of study, the glory of Christ. When we consider the reality of Jesus' ministry, we understand him from the perspective of his humanity. We read of and we learn about this in Philippians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, that Jesus made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And so we see Jesus this way, and it's okay because we need to see Jesus this way. And we need to see Jesus this way because we we are human and so we need to know that Jesus is like us, that he can relate to us, that he has been tempted in all points like as we, that he is a man of like, uh, of, of, of like suffering as we, like experience as we. He's the man that had nowhere to lay his head. He was the man who was born in a manger, not in the palace of kings. But, you know, there's another side to Jesus, isn't there? We continue in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, where we learn this, wherefore God hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven, of things in earth, of things under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now this is not a different Christ, It's just a Christ that is veiled on the earth. That the glory of Jesus was covered in order that he might take upon himself this human flesh. And in that moment of transfiguration, the glory of the only begotten Son was unveiled for just some minutes for just three men. And then it was recorded for us to understand that his glory was there all the time. That when Jesus commanded the fish to swim into the net, that when Jesus commanded the demons to leave the possessed, that when Jesus commanded the spirit of that little girl to enter into her, they were responding to the glorious Christ, though veiled, yet present. Christ's glory is revealed in his deity. The creator God, the God of all flesh, took on flesh. Romans 8 verse 3 says that what the law could not do because it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh condemned sin in the flesh. John 1 tells us that in this Word, the Word made flesh, in the the Christ was life. And that the life was the light of men. Christ's glory is revealed in His superiority. Consider Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. God, who at sundry times, and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son, whom He hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also He made the worlds, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person, and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Hebrews 1 verse 2 tells us that God made the worlds through his Son. Hebrews 1 verse 3 tells us that Jesus is the brightness of God's glory, the express image of God's person that he upholds all things by the word of his power, that he has set, sat on the majesty on high. Hebrews 1.4 tells us that he was made better than the angels, not implying that Jesus was a created being, but that through Jesus being called the only begotten son at the, at the time of his resurrection, he was given a name higher than the angels, obtaining a more excellent name than they. And when at once you understand the reality of the glory of Christ and come face to face with the majesty of Christ, you are changed forever. And that is where we find motivation. This is where theory meets reality. This is where what we know becomes a change in us Because if we understand who Christ is and we understand His glory and we understand His majesty, then we will hear Him. The legacy of those who have come to understand the glory of Jesus is a legacy of obedience. When you understand Jesus for who He is, you are inclined to put your perception of Him and your perception of yourself in its proper place. Every man who has ever truly understood the glory of God in history has humbled himself to hear Him. And if you're not hearing God, if you're not listening, if you're not obeying, Perhaps the reason is because you truly don't understand who you're serving. We have no better example of this in the Bible, I think, than Isaiah chapter 6. I mentioned it already. Let's read it. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet. And with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said... Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the posts of the doors moved at the voice of Him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, and this was His response, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hands, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar, and he laid it upon my mouth, and he said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I. Send me. When Once we are confronted with the majesty of Christ, when once we are confronted with his inestimable power, his holiness, his mercy, we ought to be forever changed. Isaiah was brought to his knees at the glory of the Lord and felt nothing but sorrow for his own sinful state in light of the holiness of God and in this state of awe wherein he saw himself for who he truly was and he saw God for who he truly was in that moment he says God there is nothing more for me there is nothing more I need there is nothing more I want than that I would be a vessel that could be used of you here am I Send me. Your, my will is now yours. My actions are now yours. Your will will become my will. Here am I. Send me. And so it must be with us in Christ. It's been a while now since we were in Luke 8.18, but it keeps coming back to me again and again and again. Jesus gives the parable of the sower and the seeds and then he says, take heed therefore how ye hear. Take heed that you're listening properly. You've got to learn to listen right. The weight that we put on the, the words that we hear correlates to the degree to which we respect the person from which they're coming. The words which come from those whom we respect hold more weight in our minds than the words that come from those whom we don't respect. So a child might hold the words of a parent above the words of his friends, or if things are a problem, they'll hold the words of their friends above the words of their parents. So a man may hold the words of one doctor above the words of another doctor based upon the degree to which he respects and trusts those respective doctors. We do this all the time so that we might rest our decisions, even major decisions, upon the advice and wisdom of those whom we respect. We might very well frame our entire lives upon the wisdom of those whom we respect. On the contrary, When someone tells us something and we choose not to listen to them, it's because we lack the fundamental conviction that their words are what is best for us. Or we simply don't care that their words are true because we're going to do what we want and we don't fear the consequences or we don't respect them enough to to do what they suggest. Now follow me here. Translate this into your life. To whatever degree you are not obeying the word of God, it's for one of two reasons. First, you don't trust God enough to believe that what he says is true. Or second, you don't fear God enough to believe that you should hold God's truth above your own will. That's it. If you know what God wants and you're not doing it, it's because you don't trust him enough or you don't fear him enough. When the word of God speaks, God commands us to hear. In the ministry of Jesus Christ, in the context of the scriptures, rest all of your authority on uh, uh, Excuse me. In the ministry of Jesus Christ and in the content of the scriptures, rest all the authority of our creator and our sustainer. This is our authority. The Word of God. God has spoken it. He asks us to hear it. All of this being said, it is not the glory of God which should convince you to trust. It should help. But truth is truth. Yet, as we understand the glory of God, it should compel our trust to greater heights. Now consider Jesus here. He came in veiled glory. The disciples saw his power, but not his glory. Save these three on the Mount of Transfiguration. They were called to hear him still. And if we can but grasp the glory of Christ, the glory of his power, the glory of his deity, the glory of his sacrifice, the glory of his mercy, the glory of his purposes, if we can but grasp that, that foundation of fear, of respect, will become so strong that the will of God will become everything to us. And the rest will simply fall away. And this is the call of the voice from heaven on that day. You have seen His glory. You know of His identity. Now hear Him. One final point. It's a question. Do you bear the marks of God's glory in your life? We made mention earlier of Moses and his interaction with the Lord in Exodus 34. Consider the account with me. Exodus 34, beginning in verse 28. And he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights and did eat neither bread nor drink water. And he wrote upon the tables, the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments, and it came to pass when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tables of testimony in his hand, when he came down from the mount, that Moses wist not that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. And when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his his face shone. And they were afraid to come nigh him. And Moses called unto them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned unto him. And Moses talked with them. And afterward, all the children of Israel came nigh, and he gave them commandment, in commandment, all that the Lord had spoken with him in the Mount uh, Sinai. And till Moses had done speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. But when Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he took the veil off until he came out. And he came out and he spake unto the children of Israel that which he was commanded. And the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone. And Moses put the veil upon his face again until he went in to speak with him. Moses had spent so much time basking in the glory of God's presence that even when he left that glory, his face shone with the afterglow of intimate interaction. Like the moon before the sun, Moses' face became a living reflection of God before the people to such a degree that it actually made the people uncomfortable and fearful. They felt dim in his light, and he was merely a fallible reflection of the light of the glory of God. Could we be this way? I'm not talking about the glow that comes off of my head in these lights because I have no hair. It's not what I mean. Can we bear the marks of fellowship? With the Lord to the extent that those who see you and know you cannot help but identify the marks of the glory of God on you. And we mentioned them in passing early. Aside from Matthew and Mark, there are two more accounts in the scriptures that use the Greek word for which we get the word transfigured and they both speak of the Christian experience. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye, here it is, transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. When you see the glory of the Lord, and when you then submit to it and hear Him, Something happens to you Rather than conforming to the world Which 1 John 2 verse 16 defines as The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes And the pride of life You are instead transformed by the renewing of your mind You submit to Christ and Christ transforms you Never forget or confuse this order The Christian life does not call us unto reform. We do not step into the Christian life to reform ourselves. The Christian life calls us unto submission, and then Christ reforms us. The Christian life is not about rules. The Christian life is about faith. And then faith unfailingly manifests itself in us through righteous works. If you have seen the glory of God and you have chosen to hear him, you will know because your mind will be transfigured as well. And then 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 to 18 is where we find the second one. Seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech, and not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel should not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished, but their minds were blinded, for until that day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ, But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their hearts. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Now the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are, here's the word, I didn't highlight it, but here it is, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. This passage speaks to the very event we just spoke to in Exodus 34. Paul tells his readers that the reason Moses was forced to hide the glory of God that was radiating from his face that reflected upon him was because the people's hearts could not handle God and his glory. The people were not willing to receive it. So when confronted with the glory of God, they didn't outright reject it. They simply asked for it to be veiled. They wanted to hear the words of God without regarding the glory of God from which it came. They wanted the content, but they rejected the authority. And this can give us all that we need to know about why Israel failed to do the Lord's will. Because they wanted the Word of God, but they didn't want the glory behind it. And it's the glory of God, it's the authority of God that compels us unto obedience. But Paul says, when a man turns to the Lord, one of the first things that happens is this veil is taken away. All of a sudden, that man no longer fears the glory of God, the radiancy of God's authority, because where the Spirit of the Lord is, there dominates liberty. And then we are changed into the image of the one in whose presence we bask. So we stand in the glory of the Lord and we bask in his glory, and it doesn't, uh, we, we're, we don't uh, have to veil it and we, we're not afraid of it because it is the glorious Lord. And as we bask in his glory and we receive his words, we reflect it and we too are changed. And we reflect it more and more the more we submit. And so you and I have a tangible marker to know the degree to which we have submitted to the authority of God, and it is this. To whatever degree you reflect God's Son, you have submitted to God's authority. And so we read in John eight thirty one. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. And again, John 13, 35. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. And again, in John 15, 7 and 8. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit and so shall you be my disciples. And again, in 1 John 2, verses 3 to 6, And hereby we do know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. He that saith, he, he abideth in him, ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked." Jesus came to show us how to live life. Not to compel us to become this way, but to compel us to believe in him so that he can make us this way. The Christian life, the spiritual life, is not about looking like a Christian it's not a life of rules, reforms, and expectations. The Christian life, the spiritual life, is a life of looking like Christ. So we bask in the glow of His glory, and as we leave the glory of His presence, the time that we spent with Him, the fellowship we've had with Him, the, uh, the listening to Him, we radiate that very glory to the world. As we fellowship with him, we take on his glow. So, the question at the end of all this is do you bear the marks of God's glory in your life? Does your life reflect Christ? If not, may I tell you why? It's because, to some degree, you don't fear him or you don't trust him. You're not fellowshipping with him properly. And because you aren't submitted, you aren't in fellowship. Because you aren't in fellowship, you aren't bearing the marks of God's glory because it comes from radiating his presence, his authority. To some degree, and you only know how much your heart has been veiled. And so then the question becomes, what are you going to do about it? Well, what is there to do? The only thing to do about it is to do what the scriptures have told us, to do what the voice of the Lord interrupted Peter to tell him. And it is this, that Christ, Jesus Christ, is God's beloved son. Hear him. Let's pray.